according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? You'll have to excuse my throat this morning. It's a little sketch or sus or whatever the Gen Xers are saying these days. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this chance to open your word and come before you and hear what you have to say. Uh, Lord, whatever is here from your word, may we understand it and put it into practice. Whatever here is extraneous or fluff, may it be forgotten. And uh, whatever is unhelpful or incorrect, uh, may we recognize that and correct it. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay, this is not a sermon on the second half of Jonah. You'll have to wait four more weeks for that. Ben will be doing that on Labor Day, but it does set us up fairly nicely this morning to talk more about forgiveness. Uh, Jonah has witnessed the depth of how far the Lord will go to forgive, and he hates it. The Assyrians, the Ninevites, Assyria was the empire, Nineveh was the capital, they were bad news. And uh, every so often, it, we compare them to different people in our world. 20 years ago, we'd say, hey, they were the Al-Qaeda of the ancient world. And then 10 years ago, they're the ISIS of the ancient world. And now we say, okay, these are the Wagner group of the ancient world. Whatever cruel, barbarian, butchers, bad news, warriors, that was the Assyrians. And on the one hand, Jonah was delighted to preach their downfall, but also concerned that the Lord might show his true colors and be forgiving. And I resonate with that quite a bit. Because if the Lord forgives my sins, that's great. In fact, it makes a lot of sense. I'm quite swell. But if the Lord forgives that other guy that does not deserve his forgiveness, and, well, that is not cool. Three weeks ago, we introduced this topic of forgiveness by defining exactly what we mean by that and what we did not mean by that. And we deeply explored the scriptural roots of what the Bible has to say about its 22 passages that we studied. And we did a lot of careful foundation work. 
And there's a risk this morning that I may say something that doesn't land quite right because I am assuming everything from three weeks ago. I don't have the chance to preach all that again. So everything, all that careful nuance and foundation work and the 13 things that forgiveness is not, import that in your minds to this morning because we are moving forward. Our working definition for forgiveness is that uh, I will not hold this against you. I'm not going to hold you accountable for the moral weight of what you have done because I'm going to let God take care of it. And he can say, I will not hold this against you because he might well hold it against Jesus on the cross. The way that we forgive and the way that God forgives are similar and related, but they are different. We forgive in different ways and we are unforgiving in different ways. But um, he has the option to hold the sins of his people against Christ, which he did, or to let the sins uh, remain with the original sinner and they can bear that weight eternally. The Lord introduced himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. After 1,500 years of mystery, how is God going to square that circle? Paul is able to point to what Jesus did on the cross, what he was sent to do to help us reconcile in our minds a, a perfectly punishing God of justice with the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. Uh, he says this in Romans 3, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation, an offering that turns away wrath, a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. All the sins up to that point, all those animal sacrifices did not get the job done pointing to Christ on the cross. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, at the time of Christ, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. And if these things are true about us, if God has done this, then how should we live in response? Not how do we earn it, but how do we live in response to that? Colossians 3, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, if it just so happens, maybe possibly that somebody in the church angers somebody else, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Not that we forgive in the same way that God does, but because of how he has forgiven us, we can also extend that to others. Our forgiveness of others is rooted in what God has done for us. I can extend forgiveness to other people because of his forgiveness to me. And perhaps I can do that in a way that I never would have been able to do otherwise. Uh, like Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. This kind of uh, love of enemy is completely beyond what we are capable of on our own. And that's why our title depicted forgiveness as much, much worse than we think. He calls us to forgive the worst offenses and you know, not just the small stuff and the easy stuff, but major things, making no distinction. And he calls us to forgive the worst offenders and then affirmatively seek their good, their success, their flourishing, even their 
eternal salvation. So then, if we're going to be doing this in real life, let's explore some of the implications. Last time I invited questions in, and there were many that did come in, some of them uh, anonymously, some of them through the website, some of them from inside my own home. Hey, what about this? Hey, what about the other? Hey, Aaron, you can wait until August the 6th, and I will deal with it then. Uh, she was also asking, are you going to have a riddle this time? Well, no, the bear is still the same color. Uh, are you going to have any big illustrations? Will Jeremy get to punch you in the face this time? Well, I probably can't stop him, but it's not in the plans. Uh, well, then how is the sermon going to be interesting and relatable and understandable? Well, you know, it's just not that kind of sermon, I guess. So we'll see. Now, this is something. Let's put the flow chart up on the screen. You've never seen this before because I cooked it up. If it looks like I drew it with my mouse, I did. So this is the sin to restoration pathway. It's a flow chart, two sided. And we start up at the top with the sin event. Now, uh, sinners follow the right side of the chart and the sinned against will follow the left hand side of the chart. And you'll see that ideally, hopefully we do meet again at the bottom and go forward from there. So let's pretend, pretend for a moment that you are the sinner. Just Pretend. All right. So hopefully at some point you'll be have an awareness. Hey, why is this person mad at me? What happened? Oh, it was that thing I said, that thing I did. Okay. Well, now I feel bad. Well, hopefully that sense of guilt will lead promptly to conviction of the Holy Spirit, repentance, where you turn from your sin uh, to the Lord and confession out loud and apology, hopefully eloquently. That is the best case scenario. Meanwhile, on the left side of the loop, you promptly feel that uh, sense of having been wronged, and you may work your way through these stages of grief, depending on how badly things get. Uh, you may feel the following, loss, hurt, anger, grief, sorrow, followed by the desire for revenge, retaliation, escalation, expansion, slander, even violence, potentially leading to Bitterness, isolation, scabs and scars and a breach. Fester, 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 rot, rot, rot. But eventually you, uh, through the knowledge of the word, through the knowledge of yourself, maybe through somebody preaching a sermon on forgiveness twice, you have the growing realization this is no way to live. Something needs to change, uh, but how? And it sounds hard. Plus, I'm a little bit comfortable where I am. It's the devil that I know. Enter forgiveness. I will not hold this against you. I will let God handle this. He will be the judge. He will see justice done. Uh, he will be my advocate. He's better at it than I am. So you make the, uh, the one-time decision or you launch uh, the recurring process of forgiveness. It's a starting point, but it's not just a moment in time. The worse the sin, the more it resembles a pattern that you have to uh, reaffirm and recommit yourself to over and over again. So you've made the start. You've forgiven internally. Ideally, on the other side of the chart, they have gone through the conviction, repentance, confession, apology. And one of you has to take the first step and reach out and communicate. Uh, on the one hand, I have this against you, but I will not hold this against you. For my part, I forgive you. And on the other side, wow, wow, I sinned against you. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I apologize. How can I make this up to you? It won't happen again. And um, we have we have a word for this in the English language. We don't need to make something up. The word is 
reconciliation, the cessation of hostilities, the beginning of peace, the thawing out of the relationship. We are no longer at odds. Now we can move forward together. Now, some people, some people that I really respect, good preachers that you've heard me quote before, would say that the entire bottom half of the chart, the yellow and the red and the green, the colors don't mean anything. I just needed to distinguish them. Some people would say all of that together constitutes forgiveness and that you can't do forgiveness unless the other person has repented and apologized. And I think those people are up a creek, respectfully. They're just wrong. We, we have a word to describe when the two sides of the chart meet and it's reconciliation. Uh, in my book, and there are others, not just me, we would say that forgiveness is all on the left side of the chart. Forgiveness is something that you do and you don't need the other person to do anything in order to forgive them. Now, you do need their participation and cooperation in order to move on to reconciliation. You can't do that without them, but uh, you don't, I would say, you don't need the other person to do anything in order to forgive them. Now, with reconciliation, it is a starting point. You can start to move forward again, but you might be starting from much further back in your relationship, and you might be moving forward more slowly than before. But over time, what was lost can be regained. It doesn't always happen, but it's great when it does. And that's what we call restoration. We have restored our relationship to where it used to be. And we can even go beyond into future growth. A relationship that goes through a periodic cycle of sin and forgiveness and repentance, reconciliation and restoration can be uh, stronger for it. There's a depth and a richness and a beauty in that because it is God at work. Don't think a strong relationship is where nobody sins against the other. That doesn't happen. We do sin against each other, right? A strong relationship is one where we can work through this process and um, advance down the road. And... By the way, this is for free. Uh, we mentioned before, somebody has to go first. Even if one party is ready, the other one might not be. And um, somebody has to take that risk and put themselves out there and take the first step. And maybe this is a can of worms, but that's why we have guest preachers. Like Scott said, uh, and now I'm saying it too, husbands, husbands, this should be you. You should be the one to take the risk and go first, whether you're on the one side of the chart or the other, especially if you're on this side of the chart, you need to be the one, perhaps even before the sun goes down, to start that conversation and see if your wife is ready to uh, bury the hatchet, metaphorically. So when we talk about the man being the head of the household, sometimes that means you're the one that sticks your neck out and sees if it's time to have that conversation just yet. Don't make it be her all the time. All right, that brings us to the first of the questions that came in. It's actually uh, a set of questions, a series. First one, multiple parts. What does reconciliation and restoration look like if the offender is a stranger? You don't know them. If you'd never crossed paths with them, you never would have met them. This is the, uh, you get into a car wreck out of state, right? Or, or the stranger danger situation, something bad happens and outside of a courtroom you'd never have a reason to see this person again now you can forgive internally hopefully eventually hard work but what would it look like to move forward together well if the person's a stranger not much right but not nothing 
God can use the situation where one of his children cross paths with a sinner and he can build something from that if, if he so chooses. And I'd rather it happen to somebody else than to me. But um, when we, it's just not much. If there's no relationship before and you wouldn't expect there to be a relationship afterwards, then reconciliation doesn't have much meaning. Now, we can talk about forgiveness. This might be helpful. It might not. In four directions, the inward and the outward, the horizontal and the vertical, the uh, purely internal inward work is that I need to forgive for my own sake, for my own health and sanity and to be free of bitterness and free of the prison of my own construction. I need to do the hard work internally of forgiveness. It's said that forgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Well, it doesn't work like that. And in order to prevent that, there's internal work that has to be done. Just you and yourself. The horizontal work, I would say, is you and the other person. One-on-one going through the process of forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation, moving forward. And if they're a stranger, that just doesn't really happen. Or if they've passed away, that window is closed. So that's uh, unfortunate, for sure. There's also the vertical dimension of forgiveness, since this is something the Lord has called us to do, because it's his nature and character. If I don't do that, if I'm acting in unrepentance and unforgiveness, then that introduces a breach into the vertical relationship. We do not want that. And then finally, there's the outward direction. Everybody who has observed and witnessed that a sin has been committed and also, hey, look, forgiveness and reconciliation are happening. What's that all about? Why why would somebody not hold it against them? What's with these Christians and the way that they forgive? It's a gospel opportunity, or at least it gets people thinking, especially if we go through the whole cycle of reconciliation and restoration. It's a testimony. If the offender is a stranger or deceased, we still get to do the inward work and not the horizontal, but the vertical and also the outward visible work. We still get that critical gospel testimony aspect, but we do miss out on one of the four directions of forgiveness because the offender is out of the picture and there's limits to what we can achieve in a fallen world. Next question. What if there is an ongoing pattern? You're willing to forgive and they've confessed and repented, but it keeps happening over and over. Well, Matthew 18, do I have to forgive my brother seven times? Ha ha, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Forgiveness without limit. We saw that last time. That is the governing principle. Uh, Joe, go ahead and throw the goofy cartoon up on the screen. Okay, so this was sent in to me by somebody who knew I was preaching on forgiveness. There is a lot here that's off base There is something to gather, and we will go from that. But first off, (laughs) forgiveness is not an entitlement. It's a command of the Lord, but it's not something that the uh, sinner gets to claim. So uh, we don't want to think about forgiveness as an entitlement. Also, this concept puts us in the position of assessing who deserves forgiveness and who doesn't, who's worthy of it and not. That's not what we're called to biblically when we talk about forgiveness. Also, beware of this cheap label toxic, right? It's kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card linguistically. Once you assign somebody the label toxic, then you sort of uh, get to treat them as less than a real person. It's a lazy way to categorize people as beneath you. So watch out for that. It doesn't mean much. Uh, We know what people mean when they say that, but we don't really want to uh, let ourselves indulge in that kind of language because it's just not. (laughs) And if anybody's toxic, it was us to the Lord, and yet he sent Christ. So we are the toxic ones. So 
there's that. Uh, but the idea here, that there is something to be gathered, that we let family members get away with stuff. And we talked last time, the 13 things that forgiveness is not, and there's a lot of uh, family-relevant things there, but we don't want to just um, excuse things because somebody is family. You know, what if it's not uh, an ongoing pattern? Get that guy off the screen, Joe. We can thank him. Good. Uh, what if there's ongoing danger, right? Adultery, repent. Adultery, repent. Adultery, are you sure you're really repenting? Because it doesn't look like it. Another one, um, have a few too many drinks. Lose your temper. Smack some people around. Sober up. Oh my gosh, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry that it's not me. I don't know what happened. Please forgive me. It won't happen again. Well, it does happen again. It happens again more and more frequently. It happens every month. So what does reconciliation and restoration look like in a situation like that? Well, we are back at the top of the cycle over and over again, and it gets a little bit darker each time, and maybe there's kids involved, all right? Forgiveness does not mean a lack of consequences. If we need to involve the police, then we call the police. If it's not a criminal matter, but it's an ongoing pattern of sin that is just not going anywhere... Uh, this is a reason that churches have elders, and not just a pastor to bear all that weight, but a team of elders. You need to not be alone if you find yourself in this situation. It doesn't happen very often, but too many times we have been in that room listening to a story from half of a couple that shocks us, or in that room with half of a couple listening to a story that does not surprise us at all, right? Come to us sooner rather than later, before it's a complete uh, dumpster fire in your relationship. Far too often, we don't hear about a situation until it's far, far too late to, to do anything about it. So um, we can help you think through what sort of boundaries and consequences and responsibilities and restrictions and restraining orders and hedges we can help you sort through that. It's definitely one of the uh, hardest and most important aspects of church leadership, and it's one of the most important aspects of belonging to a church, like Joe talked about last week. So there's that question. Next, what does reconciliation and restoration look like when you discover you just don't want much of a relationship? You are moving forward together, and then something happens, and you realize... You're not the person that I thought you were, and I forgive you, and I wish God's best for you, but aside from us both being Christians, what is the basis for our friendship and relationship here? Um, it's related to the question, what if somebody says to me, God has forgiven me, so why can't you? Uh, well, maybe they're right, and you do need to forgive them. That's possible. Consider that possibility. Could be they're using a completely different definition of forgiveness than you are. Uh, like we talked about last time, forgiveness, uh, just saying I'm sorry, is not a magic reset button to put things back the way they were. Um, but it could be that you have forgiven them inwardly and outwardly and horizontally and vertically and all that. But I just don't want to move forward as quickly as you do. Our relationship has lost more ground maybe than you realize. We are not picking up where we left off. We you know, I have the posture of soul that I'm okay with moving forward, but we lost several steps in our relationship. So we are starting from way back here from a different place. And maybe we're moving forward, but at a much slower pace than you may wish. That could happen. Now we see this, it's obvious, in romantic relationships, right? One person takes a shine to somebody else and gets all smitten, and the other person is... <laughs> 
let's just be friends, okay? It's the same way in platonic relationships. One person latches on to their new bestie, and the other person says, well, you know, I'm very flattered, but let's just be acquaintances. I know your name, and let's leave it there for now. Uh, peer relationships uh, move forward in tandem, not unilaterally. It takes two people, and sin can damage a relationship in a way that uh, it's just not going to be what it was anytime soon unless the Lord moves dramatically. So that's uh, another consequence of living in uh, a fallen world, that damage can be done to a relationship and it just might not be the same anymore. Uh, before we hit the, the really heavy ones, let's knock out a few softballs. What if there was no actual offense committed. You simply got bad information or there was a misunderstanding. You perceived that there was a real slight against you, but truly and genuinely from the other side, there was no sin committed, no ill intent, uh, there, nothing to apologize for or confess or repent other than I'm, I'm sorry there was a misunderstanding, which is not a real apology at all. Uh, the classic case is um, you have a dream and somebody close to you has betrayed you and you wake up and you realize, oh, Thank goodness it was just a dream, and yet I'm still mad at you, right? Because your emotions have received that real input, and you really do feel things, and you have to do that actual work of forgiveness. Uh, another very common one, especially in close relationships, what are the two parties don't agree on the severity of the fence? One person feels deeply aggrieved, and the other person says, okay, yeah, I can see that I did something, but... It was sort of a small thing, and I'm actually rather offended that you are accusing me of something so serious. The classic illustration of this is, we were on a break, right? Okay, from a TV show 30 years ago, uh, hey, you cheated on me. Well, no, I didn't. I couldn't have because we weren't together at the time. And then they're mad at each other for seven seasons. They're never going to agree on the facts and circumstances of the case, but if they're going to move forward together in any sense, there's going to have to be some... Uh, uh, payment swallowed in that relationship. A price has to be paid and they're going to have to do some uh, forgiveness. Another one. Is it possible that I might need to forgive God for what he has done? Answer. No, you cannot because God cannot sin against you. Now, he might be doing things in your life that you don't understand, that you don't see fully, that you don't like, and you don't appreciate very much right now. And there's definitely room to legitimately struggle and wrestle with God about what he's doing, uh, but he cannot wrong you. And we'll see a lot of this probably in Jonah in a few weeks. Um, but since he cannot sin against us, we can have no basis to forgive him. And if we feel that way, then we have to um, wrestle with the theology of what we know to be true about God and, and bring our feelings into alignment with the truth of what the word says. Uh, what about forgiving yourself? I know God's forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. I'll say not only can you forgive yourself, but you must. You can absolutely sin against yourself. We, we all do that every day. The wrong things that I do do damage, not just to the people around me and offense against God, but they do harm to me as well. And uh, it's not right for me to hold that against myself and spend my life wallowing in self-recrimination. Somebody uh, with much more training and wisdom and insight than me, depending on how deep the rabbit hole goes, would need to help you unravel that. That's the territory of pastoral counseling or licensed mental health material. Um, but in concept, not only is it possible for you to forgive yourself, but you must. 
Now that brings us to our two big questions uh, that we want to um, wrestle with that came in from outside my own family. Uh, is our responsibility to forgive Christians different than for non-Christians? Well, in one sense, no, we are called to forgive everybody, Christians and non-Christians alike. But on the other hand, uh, the closer the relationship is, um, the higher the stakes and the greater the urgency. Proximity matters. If you don't forgive somebody who bends your fender, well, that's unfortunate. If you have a spat with a neighbor several doors down the street and that goes unresolved, well, that could be awkward. It's not good. If you have an issue with somebody at work that lingers, well, that could start impacting people's careers and the health of the business. Uh, like Joe talked about last week, if we have unforgiveness inside the church, that is a problem, right? If if one part of the body is at odds with another part of the body and there's friction and frustration, well, that is uh, that's serious. Escalating unforgiveness between parents and children one way or the other is uh, dire and worst case scenario. Unforgiveness between spouses is uh, life wrecking and not just for the spouses. It's all unforgiveness. But the cost is not the same. Consider what Paul has to say. A few scriptures here on the topic. This starts us in Galatians 6. Let us not grow weary of doing good, because it is weary uh, to do good. But let us not grow weary of doing good. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. So everybody, but above and beyond those of us that are brothers and sisters in Christ. Back in 1 Corinthians, Paul has to call out that church uh, for tolerating a member's sin that was way beyond the pale. And it worked. Church discipline was successful. The person repented and they changed their ways, but the church wasn't responding to that repentance in the right way. Church discipline for the purpose of restoration. Now what? Follow-up letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This punishment is enough. It's enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, if you take a shot of skim milk, every time I invoke the name of Satan, you probably go through these sermons thirsty, because that does not happen very often. And yet here we are, Satan and the enemy seeks to separate us and divide us. So forgiving each other inside the church is a defense against his influence. And we can see how that unfolded uh, in an unfortunate way back in Second Samuel. Uh, David could give a TED talk on being a really horrible, awful, first rate, bad parent, just really really terrible. And uh, for reasons that are well beyond PG-13, David's son Absalom is in exile. And he wants to come home, and David is maneuvered into letting him come home. But the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. And then we get six chapters of civil war. We only have so much of David and shot through the middle of his story is family carnage, including this big, big mess with Absalom. And it was bad. Philippians four has an example that's not quite that destructive, but still I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche 
to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, might be a particular person, might just be anybody who's close to these women, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. All right, these are women that we're going to meet in heaven someday, and yet Paul needs to take space in Philippians 4 of all chapters to say, hey, knock it off. Get it together. You're in church together, so make it happen. Then there's one final passage worth considering on this point. The Corinthians, again, church gone wild, they have disputes, and they have taken to suing each other in the public courts, and Paul is aghast. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? This is not the testimony that we want. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That sounds un-American, right? I have rights, but I need to steward my rights for the advance of the kingdom. And that might mean a case that I would bring against an outsider. I might just drop against a Christian because we'd rather set an example of forgiveness and peace rather than rancor and restitution. Unbelievers need to see that we believe in justice and consequences, but we are willing to be inexplicably forgiving because of what the Savior has done for us, and that matters more than my rights under law. Final question, bless you, to see us out. What's your advice for someone uh, that is struggling to even want to forgive someone, adding on, particularly in the context of a lifetime of wrongdoing, and maybe they have preceded us in death. I'm quite fond of this question because it belongs to a bigger family of questions that I've uh, wrestled with quite a bit. Uh, To set up the situation, I'm a believer. I'm uh, confident that the Lord has worked in my life and made me alive and given me his spirit and, and made me his. He is at work in my life, and I am his but there are, yeah, some areas of my life where it's hard. The flesh is, you know, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? The temptation is real. But there are other areas of my life where I see what the Lord calls me to, and I don't even want that. I know the right thing, and it's not that, oh, I want the right thing, but it's hard. It's, I see what he's called me to, and I have no desire. Do not even feel that in my heart. So we're acknowledging this person has done me the courtesy of acknowledging, okay, there is a biblical call to forgiveness. We must forgive and seek the good of the other person and love my enemy. And I don't hate the idea, but the other person is, you know, they got a lot to answer for and they're gone anyway. So why bother? What's, what's the point? Now, the first answer is the easy cheesy church answer. Uh, you should pray, right? But specifically pray the sort of Lord increase my faith help my unbelief kind of prayer. It says, I see what your word says, and I see where I am, and there's a gap between them, so help me want what you want for me. This is something that you desire, so help me to desire it as well, please, because I don't yet. Uh, Second, you can ask the Lord for a measure of understanding of why that person is the way they are, or why they were the way they were. They're Past trauma does not excuse their misbehavior in any way, but learning to see yourself and see the other person as uh, one of the Lord's creations um, is an important step made in God's image, but imperfectly 
bearing that image, right? A simultaneous holding of understanding that they are a strong sinner. They know what they are doing when it comes to sin, uh, but also they have their own damage. So uh, having the Lord help us understand um, what's going on in their life. And then third, uh, become very familiar with the basis for your own salvation and your own relationship with uh, the Savior who saved you. Uh, Tim Keller, recently with the Lord, phrases it quite provocatively. Uh, he says that a posture of unforgiveness is arrogant because you're treating the other person as beneath you. You know, I would never do what you've done. What you've done is unforgivable. And that it actually says something about it's an indication of where you are are in your understanding of how the Lord has forgiven you. So uh, third, focus all the more on your own Savior. Fourth, again, like Joe said, don't do this alone. Find a person or a couple or a small group to help you walk through this because it's hard work and it's not a solo project. Fifth, you can get better at forgiveness with Practice like a muscle group or a set of skills. If you don't forgive the small, minor stuff in your life, then you won't have what it takes to forgive the big stuff. And likewise, if you practice um, seeing and looking for glimpses of the image of God in other people who are just strangers and unknown to you, and then uh, giving to them the kindness and love of the Lord to people you just meet at the grocery store or at Speedway, uh, then you'll, you'll have the skills and abilities to do so when it's hard and difficult and personal and costly. It's challenging to cultivate an attitude of animosity or even just ambivalence if you're already working to honor what slender amount of uh, what is honorable in their life. And then finally, the answer to the big question, the big answer, how do we as Christians bend our desires in the direction they should go when they really want to be bending back the way they came? Uh, It's not an exciting answer. It's just the ordinary Christian life. You spend time daily in God's word. You spend time daily in God's presence. You spend time at least weekly with God's people. Come to church and be with his people, not just as an activity, uh, but like we heard last week. Um, Being in a community, experiencing real fellowship, hearing his words, singing his songs, celebrating communion, um, belonging to a community of believers that helps us as we practice the ordinary means of grace in our lives. Uh, Together, we help each other trust and obey. Together, we help each other. We might not see the whole path in front of us, but we usually know the first step. We can help each other take the first step, then we'll see where the Lord can take us from there. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this chance to consider some of uh, what it means to live out what you have called us to. Lord, thank you that you've given us such a uh, splendid example of forgiveness and and what you've done for us. And and thank you that you've given us uh, a thousand chapters in this book of not what we're supposed to do, uh, but also good um, narrative examples of history of of, uh, how things can go wrong and how your people uh, might handle situations badly. And, and how we can learn from that. And Lord, thank you that you have placed us into a community where we can help each other know these things and understand these things and then put them into practice. Because Lord, what you've called us to is so very difficult. You've given us the power to do it. So um, please help us have the desire to uh, live lives that please you, even when it's extremely costly and difficult. And thank you that you make it possible for us to do, uh, do that. And thank you that you've given us your son, Jesus, uh, so that we can see how it can be done. It's in your name that we pray, Lord. Amen.